Okay. So, the definition of dyspepsia is chronic or recurrent pain or discomfort centered in the upper abdomen. Right, you have your right upper quadrant, your epigastrum, and your left upper quadrant. When you're talking about dyspepsia, that's where the discomfort is, okay? So right upper quadrant, epigastrum, right, left upper quadrant. So when it comes to the etiology of dyspepsia, all right, somebody comes in complaining of right upper quadrant, epigastric, or left upper quadrant pain, pr primarily central, let's do vindicate. What could that be? Vascular? What, okay. what kind of vascular? Uh, so, triple A. Triple A, okay. What else? Hmm? A heart attack? A heart attack, yes, myocardial infarction. What else? Aortic dissection, okay, very good. What else? What else could this be? Mesenteric ischemia. Sorry? Mesenteric ischemia, yes. Yes, absolutely. And what else? What, what about eye? The eye of Vindicate. So this is immune, right? Infection? Uh, infe no, infection. Oh, infectious. Oh. Uh, uh, you said upper? Yes, it's left upper. So it could be H. pylori? Uh, H. pylori, okay, but H. pylori causes peptic ulcer disease. Okay, very good. Peptic ulcer disease, what else? Some kind of gastritis or something? Yeah. A gastritis. Okay. I wouldn't use, I wouldn't think E. coli with that. I would think lower quadrant with E. coli. But upper quadrant a gastritis, absolutely. What else? An esophagitis. What else? A pancreatitis, yes. Depending on the age of the patient, it could be pyloric stenosis, right? If it's well, if it's a baby, yeah. Could be, but baby generally will not tell you they have pain, they will start vomiting, but that's, that's okay, it's good. What else? How about the N? Neoplastic? What, uh, what, what could this be? Uh, gastronoma? Yeah. Carcinoma? What else? Pancreatic carcinoma. Absolutely. Um, the D of degenerative. Hmm? You will learn in um, in endocrinology one of the the effects that diabetes has is um, uh, neuropathy. Oh, yeah. But they, it's, it's um, a condition where it slows down the motility of the, uh, the yeah, so it has gastroparesis. And that's secondary to a neurologic deficit, but because of the long-term um, effects of diabetes, so you can say that that's a degenerative problem. Okay, so um, the other eye, immunologic. 
have a, a pancreatitis due to autoimmune disease? Autoimmune disease, an autoimmune pancreatitis, um, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What else? There is a condition, although it is the small intestine, but it usually the patient will present with abdominal pain is celiac sprue. Yeah. So, okay. And that's an autoimmune disorder. What else? Um, so that's immune. What about the C? It's congenital. We talked about pyloric stenosis. Okay. Um, so bobulus, I mean, bobulus, I know it's often the sigmoid, but yeah. it's a susception, like that. That's the one abdominal, yeah. So with congenital, usually pyloric stenosis is the, what we usually will put in a differential diagnosis, at least to begin with, all right? The A, I think autoimmune was A, and then the I was iatrogenic. So if it's iatrogenic, it could be either a clinician injured the patient. They just had what? An endoscopy or surgery, right? Or what else could cause a gastritis like that? Ansets, yeah. It's on the PowerPoint, yeah. But what else? What else? I did not put on there. Strep, yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, that's good from ENT from last semester. Yeah, obstructococcal uh, pharyngitis in patients but oftentimes will present with abdominal pain. But iatrogenic, meaning, what about the 19-year-old that went to college and is, uh, is initiating into a frat and they do a binge drinking party? Yeah, all of y'all that are going to work in the emergency room, August and September. They, they, at that first week, and when the athletes come back for, to start practice, the football players usually start about a month earlier. Uh, that, that first week, but it's full of 19-year-olds doing the most stupidest things. But one of them is over drinking alcohol and they come in with an acute gastritis. Okay, very good. So we did vindicate, um, but remember that it is chronic and recurrent pain, all right? That's what we categorize as dyspepsia. Now, the story of H. pylori is very interesting. Do you know the story of H. pylori? How did we come to the conclusion that H. pylori causes peptic ulcer disease? It's fascinating. Back there, you know the, the almost one? So this crazy researcher in, in Australia had always said that peptic ulcer disease was secondary to inflammation infectious. It had to be an infectious process that caused inflammation. And he was on and on and on and on. 
on and then he showed, they showed that, you know, H. pylori was present and I don't know what other percentage and, and ulcers. So he infected himself. He drank a vial of a culture of H. pylori. Yes. Isn't that like the most outrageous thing? <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. He gave himself an ulcer to prove a point. This was back in the 80s. It was, I mean, it was, it was everywhere in the journals. I mean, it was everywhere because everything from, well, holy cow, there, he's right, this is an infl infectious inflammatory process. Whereas um, then the other end was like the ethical part of it. Is he insane? You know. So anyway, that's the story behind H. pylori. Um, about 10% of your patients with peptic ulcer disease will have pylori, maybe a little more than that. Um, but most of your patients is going to be due to use of NSAIDs or is idiopathic. We don't know. Okay? So most of your patients' NSAIDs, about 10 or 20% will actually have H. pylori. And the rest of it, you're going to have to work a little harder to find out where <coughs> is pain coming from. Okay? So the diagnosis, it depends on the patient's age, severity of symptoms. The, when do you get alarmed? When do you start, you know, ordering the labs and, you know, in, and bringing the patient in closer is when it is associated with weight loss, dysphagia, recurrent vomiting, hematemesis, hematochesia, or melanin. If, if there are any of those symptoms with the, um, that the patient presents along with abdominal pain, you have to move a little bit quicker, okay? You have to look a little deeper. Those are what I call alarm, system, alarm symptoms. So, um, in terms of diagnosis of um, the H. pylori, we do have the quantitative ELISA test. It's readily available. It's cheap. Um, and it's simple to detect. Do you have the antigen, the antibody or not? Um, the problem is the specificity and the sensitivity of the test. It has a very low sensitivity and specificity, 79 and 85 percent. Um, and it really does not reflect if the treatment worked. So you can diagnose a patient, oh, you have H. pylori, you give them the treatment, but if you repeat the test, it's going to come back positive because the IgG is, is there and it's always going to be there. The treatment's not going to be, you can't know whether the treatment worked or not. So the ELISA test is falling off the grid a bit. It is there, it is available for you, but not very, very many clinicians are using it. Um, what they're using. Well, before we do that, you also have the fecal antigen immunoassay. Now, the fecal antigen immunoassay is 95%, 98% sensitivity and specificity. 
So if you were going to use a test that was going to give you, um, you know, the definite uh, answers, it would be a fecal antiviral assay. Um, it also helps you after you treat the patient, you repeat the test, and if it's, it's negative, it's not there, the antigen is gone, right? So um, it's a good way to see if it worked or not, okay? And the other thing is that even though you gave them a PPI or an H2 blocker, it won't affect the results. The problem is that it is very cumbersome to perform. I don't think that there's a human being that likes to sit on the toilet, put a plastic bag on the toilet, sit on the toilet and sit there and poo and then pick, you know, take a specimen, put it in a bag and then take it to the, to the physician. And by the way, it has to be a fresh specimen. You can't let it sit in the refrigerator or let it sit out for hours. You have to take it immediately to the, to the office or to the lab. What's the problem? Well, some of us don't pull when the lab is open. Right? It's those little things, you know? Oh, wow. 95% specificity, sensitivity, it reflects treatment. And you know, the, 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 the guy that's selling the rep, you know, the, selling the product, and they're pushing it like crazy. And they're like, well, well um, if the patient goes poop at nine o'clock at night, where is he supposed to take the specimen? You know, I mean, can't do that. Um, so here comes the urea breath test. And um, the advantages of it is that it is very reliable. It's about almost 100% um, specificity and sensitivity. And it does reflect um, the, sorry, where am I? Okay, and it does reflect the treatment after four weeks. So if you order it to diagnose, right? You, you, you order to diagnose and confirm your diagnosis, put the patient on medications, and then you repeat the test after the patient has completed the therapy in four to six weeks. Okay? You can't do it before. After six weeks, it can be a little bit, um, the, the specificity and the sensitivity starts to drop. So between four to six weeks after therapy, repeat the test. Um, it is a fairly simple to do. Um, have you ever seen it done? Yes? yes. Okay. How is it done? Uh huh. Okay. Uh huh. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Relatively quick. Yeah. Probably the first time you Okay. And how many years ago was that? Five. Five years ago. Okay. You drink something first, right? Uh. They give you something first. Yes, they do. Yeah. They give you a very small dose of a radioactive um, marker which is what marks the 
the H. pylori so that when you blow in and they take the specimen, they can see the, the marker. That's what they are they're, they're measuring. So it's a small, a small dose. You take it, they wait a few minutes, and then you blow. You start blowing into this balloon. Anybody else had a, a different experience? It's very similar. Yes? The hydrogen is for general bacteria. Is for general bacteria. Urea breath test is specifically for pylori. The hydrogen test um, test is very similar, but it's used more for patients who do like la uh, lactose intolerance or any other type of um, small bowel um, disorders. Okay. Uh, but we're talking today about H. pylori and urea breath testing, okay? Disadvantages of the urea breath test, um, there really aren't very many. Uh, you know, just the patient has to take this medication and, um, and the only thing is that usually patients self-medicate. They go to the pharmacy and pick up a PPI or pick up a, a H2 blocker, and they don't tell you they did. And they do the test, and they took a PPI the night before, and it does affect it. So please don't. The patient can't take a PPI. I usually tell them three days uh, because it will affect the result of the test. All right. Some of this it may be repetitive to you, but um, I'm focusing more on the um, lab portion of it, okay? So here are the instructions for uh, breath urea test. Um, make sure that the patient, the, uh, that, should say, that should say be sure, that the patient does not eat or drink anything except water the, the day of the test. Um, the patient swallows a, a little bit of a, of a radioactive pill. Uh, about 10, 20 minutes later, they give, they're given a balloon, they blow into it, and then the, they run the test very quickly. You'll get the results. Um, it's very quick. In 24, 40 hours, you should have the results. Um, so that's that was, um, what you use for H. pylori. The number one gold standard is your urea breath test. But in the event that you don't have a urea breath test or you cannot do a urea breath test, you've got the fecal antigen test and you have the serol serologic um, antibody test. So who would you not order a, a um, urea breath test? Who's the patient that you would not, would not be able to or you would not order an urea breath test? If they took a PPI or H2, who else? I'm thinking, I, I'm th think outside of that, okay? Hmm? Someone with respiratory problems, like what? Hmm? Emphysema? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's obstructive disorders. Think restrictive disorders. What are pulmonary cystic fibrosis? What else? 
Mm -hmm. No, that's a that's an obstructive disorder. Pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. What else? Hmm? Sarcoid. Yes, sarcoid. All those are restrictive disorders, and the lungs is very difficult to expire. So giving, doing a urea breath test may be exceptionally difficult for these patients. All right? So what is the thing that I always tell you when you approach a case? Who is your patient? Okay? Keep in mind who is your patient and think. Why on earth would you order a urea breath test on a patient who has severe idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? Okay, think. Why would you order that if a patient has a, 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 a tracheostomy? All right? Because there are patients that have, have had a tracheostomy because they had tracheal cancer or laryngeal cancer and have a permanent trach. It's very difficult for them to do a test like urea breath test. So, patients who um, have a PET tube or are not able to swallow, because you have to give them this radioactive medication, how are you going to give it? There's no way. Who is your patient? All right? The gold standard by far is the urea breath test. But invariably, you'll have patients that you cannot do that, so what are you going to do? You've got your fecal antigen test, you've got your serologic antibody test, okay? Not perfect, they have their disadvantages, but at least you have something to do. All right, so the CLOAD test is a test for H. pylori that's done during an endoscopy. So when they do the scope, um, this, they, they take a specimen and they run the, the, the CLO test, which is a, um, a direct uh, evaluation of the specimen. It uh, has about over 95% um, sensitivity and um, specificity, and they can tell you right after the endoscopy if it is H. pylori. So um, the only problem is that it does require endoscopic bi biopsy. So I have a question for you. You have a patient complaining of dyspepsia. What would lead you to forego the urea breast test and send that patient for an endoscopy? Yes, sir. Alarm symptoms. Okay, what, what else? Absolutely alarm systems, absolutely. Their age. Their age. Okay, what else? Hmm? How long they have had their symptoms? Therapy not working. Therapy not working, excellent. The two, main, the two main reasons to send someone for an endoscopy is that you treated them, they're continuing to have um, symptoms, they need an endoscopy. And if they have 
um, warning symptoms, the alarm symptoms, okay? Um, I'm sure you covered esophagitis and gastritis, all of that in, in earlier in your ClinMed lecture series, but my job is to help you to apply, apply. Who's your patient? What would you choose? Which would be the best one? Urea or send for endoscopy? At what point do you send to endoscopy? These are decisions that you have to make, okay? All right, I want to make a little um, parenthesis here. So you're not going to get tested on this or anything, all right? But in, um, just last year in May, was it May this year? No, it was May this year. Yes. There was an article that was, that was um, uh, published in one of the journals about um, advanced practice practitioners the, um, giving them the privilege, extending their pri privileges in the hospital to actually do endoscopies and colonoscopies. So, um, so more and more and more PAs go and work for a gastroenterologist or go to a gastroenterology fellowship and they are the ones doing the colonoscopies and endoscopies. So why am I bringing this? Because if you do work for a gastroenterologist, after about maybe a year or two, get your, you know, get your feet wet, get your, your, your you know, bearings, and then ask if, if, if he would you know, train you to do an endoscopy or flex SIGs, flex, flexible sigmoscopies. Well, I can't talk about it. Um, why? because it increases access, because while he's seeing another patient, you could be doing the colonoscopy. That it increases access to patients, but it also, cha-ching, cha-ching, you're bringing in revenue. So you're bringing in more because they're able to do more colonoscopies, that's more revenue. Now, a little pearl from Professor Diaz, if you do all this, in, when we negotiate your, your contract and make sure that you get a percentage of those procedures, honey. Okay? Now, don't be greedy because you just graduated from PA school. You just completed your fellowship. Don't be greedy. So usually I tell my, you know, because I, I get a lot of emails from former students. Like, Can you get this contract? I usually tell them to start with about 2 to 3% and start increasing slowly to 5-10% um, of the total. And that you get paid quarterly. No nonsense is at the end of the fiscal year, you'll get your money. No. Every quarter. And you keep track of it. Okay? You have to keep track of it. That's your responsibility. Don't, don't expect the manager to keep up with it. That's your responsibility. They'll do it, but that's your responsibility. Every time you walk in and you do that, look, to look for an app, I don't know, whatever. Keep track of it, and at every quarter, sit down with the manager. Okay? Where's my check? I know, I know a PA that works in GI. The guy makes an obscene amount of money. 
his base salary is pretty much what the mean is, you know, for a PA that's been in practice for 10 years. But on top of that, he can make between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 in addition to his base salary. So, if you never consider gastroenterology, maybe you should. All right, close parentheses. Um, all right, so celiac sprue um, is an immunologic disease that we talked about earlier, and basically it is an, a reaction to gluten or any related proteins, and usually it's wheat, barley, and rye are the culprits. The history, the patient's going to have diarrhea, theodorrhea, they may have weight loss, bloatedness, weakness, dyspepsia. They may also have some flatulence. Does everybody know what flatulence is? All right, good. <laughs> when you examine the patient, the patient may be totally normal. And by the way, these symptoms wax and wane, okay? It's not like constant, constant, constant. And the, way, the reason why they wax and wane because it depends on what they eat, right? If they went out and had pizza and beer, they're going to be in your office with diarrhea and abdominal pain. But if they went out and had a piece of steak with some broccoli, they're fine. All right, but over time, if it's really severe, the patient may have muscle wasting, pallor, they have easy bruising, they have hyperkeratosis. So let's go one by one here. Why would they be pale? Where is, the, where is the disorder? Close your eyes and put yourself in, where, in, where anatomically is the, the disorder? It's in the small bowel, right? The ileum, the jejunum. It's in the small bowel. So why would the patient be pale? What's not, exactly. Iron is absorbed in the jejunum and in the ileum. And if the, the jejunum and the ileum are inflamed, they, it cannot absorb iron and the iron just goes out and they poop it out. So they get anemic. Why would they have easy bruising? What else is absorbed in the small bowel? Vitamin K. Why do you need vitamin K? Because you need vitamin K in order to make coagulation factors in your liver. No coag factors, what's going to happen? You're going to bleed, right? Hypokeratosis or hyperkeratosis, thickening of the skin and scaliness of the skin. That's vitamin E, because vitamin E is absorbed in the small bowel. And it, it, vitamin E is essential for your hair, nails, and skin. Okay? Why would they have osteomalacia? 
vitamin D deficiency. And what about um, ataxia? B12 is absorbed primarily in the stomach, but it is also absorbed in the small bowel. But also, vitamin A. Vitamin A is essential for neurotransmission and production of neurotransmitters. So A, D, E, and K. Vitamins A, D, E, and K. All of those vitamins have one thing in common. They're fat-soluble. Okay. So... Parasthesias, abdominal distension, hyperactive bowels, and dermatitis herpetiformis. This is the one, one of the few gastroenterologic um, disorders that has dermatologic disorders associated with it. Okay, so what does dermatitis herpetiform look like? Little red dots that are around the elbow, in the hands, mm -hmm. but they're but they're vesicular. Right, they look like shingles or they look like chicken pox, right? And a lot of times when I teach, I'm gonna teach pediatrics in the summer, and I'll you'll, I'll repeat this, but a lot of times babies come in and they're diet misdiagnosed with chicken pox. And then they come in with another bout of, and they said, wait a minute, you can't have chicken pox twice. So they're misdiagnosed, they actually have celiac sprue. And it happens when they start, um, mommy starts feeding them cereals, and they give them the barley and a little, you know, cream, and then they, break out in this rash. Okay. So how do we diagnose it? What labs do you order? You're going to order a tissue transglutaminase or TTG IgA antibody. Okay. Um, the, the advantage of this is that it is the most least in invasive. Um, it is inexpensive. Um, it's easily, um, and most insurance and all insurance will cover it. The only problem with this is that you may get a false negative, um, and it's up to 3% of patients that you may get a false negative. So you can't depend your diagnosis on just the lab, okay? You have to do the history the physical, the labs, um, and, and usually the history is what's going to really hit the nail, is that every time they eat wheat, barley, or rye, they have these symptoms. The other test that can be ordered is the gliandin antibody, IgG and IgA. Um, the only issue with this one is that it is not as sensitive as, as the TTG. So the TTG is considered the gold standard. Um, 
But um, it may be negative if the patient is already on a low gluten diet and you're going to diagnose it, it may, may come up negative. So I'm just telling you what is available, but I'm also letting you know what is the gold standard. The gold standard is your TTG if you suspect celiac screw. Um, in terms of diagnosis, definitive diagnosis, definitive diagnosis is going to be a biopsy. Okay? So when you look in on the, in the biopsy, this is normal. This is abnormal. Under the microscope, you have all these fingers. That's normal. That's the way it should look like. Yeah, that's a biopsy of the small intestine. But with celiac screw, this is what it looks like. It's lost all of the, the folds. So if you lose that surface area, what's going to happen? You have malabsorption. Okay. Do we need a break? Yes. All right. Ten minutes, come back at nine, and we finish up with colon cancer. about colon cancer. Um, it is the uh, third most common cause of um, cancer in both men and women. Um, it is the second most common cause of death, of death because of cancer in both men and women. And the most uh, recent data from the American Cancer Society um, in 2021 um, up to this was reported, I believe, in May, June, May. Um, there were 106,000 new cases of colon cancer, 44,000 new cases of rectal cancer. That's um, a little over 150,000 patients, new patients. That's in addition to existing patients. Um, and unfortunately, those numbers are continuing to rise. Um, we don't know if this is due to gen we do know that there are genetic markers, but there could be epigenetic issues. In other words, I mean, there might be an exposure to certain um, pollutants, both in air and water. It could be due to um, living conditions, nutrition. Um, so you know, you think about the social determinants of health. And um, you have to take all of that in consideration. When well, you see the incidence of the disease going up despite all of the screening, despite the treatment, you have to start thinking about beyond genetics. Is this epigenetic? Is this environmental, diet, um, occupation? You know, what, what else could be contributing to this? Um, why is it that we see so much colon cancer in the United States, but when you go east um, to Asia, you know, China and Japan, that's something that's really seen. So 
you know, whereas stomach cancer seems to be much more than here. So what is it? Well, what is it about our diets? What is it about our, you know, environment? All right, so that's just. Do we know how much of our meat consumption does play a factor into it? Based on that? That's been, you know, I, I think the pendulum swing back and forth on that issue as far as, you know, the conception of, of uh, meat and the association to colon cancer. Um, you know, there hasn't been any definitive studies done. And a lot of it, I'm going to tell you, and this is, I'm not getting political here, okay? It's been for the record, and it's been recorded. The meat industry in this country has a tremendous political clout. Just like, yeah, yeah, just, just so like, like just like dairy does. Um, they have a, a, they have huge numbers of um, people that work in D.C. And the first sign of a bill that would affect the sales of red meat. Like if a study comes up and, the, and really says that there could be an association, they they will knock it out before you can say your name. They will never see the Congress. That's how strong their clout is. Alcohol, dairy, the meat industry, the cattle industry. Um, huh? Tobacco, not so much. They got caught. They got caught in the nineties, and they had to pay like billions of dollars, and so not so much. Um, but um, Sixers Farmers was like another piece. Right, exactly. Yeah, and in here, and in in uh, California, citrus and grapes. Um, those two industries are, are they have a tremendous political clout. Uh, going against them is like going David and Goliath, you know. It's it's a huge undertaking, but there's still studies. They're still you know they're still trying to plug along and try to teach patients to eat more fiber, more fruit, and more vegetables. Um, I never tell a southern gentleman not to eat beef, okay? Because they were like, oh, and God forbid, you know, especially like. Mexican, Central American. That's been my experience. You know, that the cookout man every weekend. I don't know about you, but you know, nobody, nobody's going to turn down a good steak. Or, you know. But we try. Anyway, let's get back here. So the U.S. Preventive Task Service Task Force is going to be the best place for you to get some solid guidelines, okay? Because you're going to get guidelines from different places like the American Cancer Association or the American Gastroenterology folks, or you're going to get the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Academy of Family Practice. Um, but I like to go to the, to the U.S. Preventative Services, um, Preventative Services, task force because that's where Medicare and Medicaid will determine what they're going to pay for. So I tend to lean on, on those guidelines because, you know, like, for instance, 
The American Cancer Society says that you should start screening at age 45. <coughs> well, the U.S. preventative sources say that it should be age 50, for sure, for sure, but 45 has a moderate indication that it could be beneficial. So you as a clinician, where do you start? Okay? So I just wanted you to see first before we go on is these are the, the classifications of recommendations of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. If it's an A, it is, they are determining absolutely that's an absolute yes because it has been shown that doing that will, um, will result in a positive outcome. B is that yes, but the positive outcome with the current data that we have is moderate. Okay? Um, C is not a mandate and, and not saying no, but it should be offered to the patient because it's up to the patient's preferences and, you know. And then you have um, D, that it is no, absolutely not, you don't do that because it will harm the patient. Um, and then they always have the I statement, which is basically the, the you know, disclosure, we're not responsible for anything that we do. Um, but I just want you to get acquainted with that because when you look at a recommendation, pay attention, is this an A, B, or C, okay? So, um, the American Cancer Association um, recommends that you start um, screening men and women at age 45. That's their first colonoscopy should be done at age 45, and you do so every 10 years up to the age of 75. Between the ages of 76 and 85, the decision depends. Does the patient want to be scoped? If the patient already has <clears throat> a terminal cancer, for instance, they have terminal lymphoma, they have terminal stage four, you know, breast cancer, their life expectancy is very low, so really putting them through a colonoscopy is not really indicated for screening purposes. The overall health of the patient, remember, you gotta put this patient under um, anesthesia. So is this a patient that has a pulmonary disorder or upper, upper GI disorder that is at high risk for aspiration? Um, what about their cardiac um, health? You know, do they have cardiomyopathy if they had multiple heart attacks and their, their, their hypertension is uncontrolled? Um, and also their prior history, if they just had a colonoscopy five years ago, and it was fine, or it was 10 years ago and it was fine and has never had any adenoma, any polyps, nothing, then, you know, uh, it depends. You know, you have to put it on a, on a, on a scale um, and I either recommend or not. Now, if the patient says, no, I am 76 years old, I graduated, you are not doing it, then you say, Recommended patient refuse, just document it and move on. 
Um, over the age of 85, it is not, not, not recommended at all. Regardless of the history, regardless. And the reason for that is the studies have shown that doing colonoscopies at 85 or older does not result in, in longevity, extending life expectancy. For instance, for every polyp that I find in a patient who's 45 or 46 years old, I'm and I remove that polyp, I'm extending that person's life by 10 years. That's what the studies have shown. But if the person is 85 years old, it does not matter. It does not extend their life expectancy. So that's why after the age at 85 or older, it is not recommended for screening purposes. Now, if it is for diagnostic purposes, patient comes in complaining of left lower quadrant pain, has um, melena, and has their, their stools are pencil thin, and everything indicates that the patient has colon cancer, you gotta go in and take a biopsy. But that's for diagnostic purposes. What we're talking here is about screening, okay? Yes, ma'am. Okay, you're ahead, of, you're ahead about three of the slides, so, all right, let me do my job. Okay, sorry. All right, um, and that's, I'm just joking, okay? No, no, I know. Yeah. All right, everybody clear on that? All right, now, I'm going to get on my advocacy soapbox for just a few seconds. Most of us here in this room will be working in South Florida, okay? Our clientele is primarily brown and black. The studies have shown, the epidemiologic studies have shown that in brown and black patients who have been found to have cancer have been diagnosed with advanced cancer. So they tend to be more advanced than in white folks. So, if you are a clinician working in South Florida and the majority of your patients are brown and black, you have got to be vigilant about their colonoscopies. Because that 45-year-old black male, that 51-year-old um, uh, brown woman can have stage two colon cancer and you're being flippant about it. Right? Be vigilant with it because our population tends to have more advanced cancer. Why is that? We still don't know. There are some genetic markers that are more prevalent in brown and black than there are in Caucasians. That's still under, under research. Um, and I'm keeping an eye on it because I just happen to carry that mutation. So, but we, we don't know yet. Okay? Did I ever tell you that they called it, <laughs> when, they, when they found it, they said I was a wild variant. So I'm gonna get a t-shirt. <laughs> wild variant. <laughs> All right, so how frequently? Um, well, now we know what age is, right, and who. Now how frequently? It depends. 
It depends on the mode of screening. If it's a colonoscopy, or is it a DNA fecal test? Or, you know, what are you using to screen the patient? What is the family history? Um, and what is the, if the patient had the presence of an adenoma on a previous screening? Um, so, and with endoscopic um, evaluation of the colon, um, it is the most reliable and it is the gold standard uh, to go in um, doing a colonoscopy. Okay, if the patient were to pay out of pocket, it is fairly expensive, but most insurances, all insurances will pay, actually it is like a mammogram, you don't pay. It's part of the wellness checkup. Um, and I included a, a, a video of a live feed of a colonoscopy that they did on CBS, I think it was, and I thought it was interesting and you can watch it. Um, so, how frequently do we do the colonoscopy? Every 10 years, if a patient does not have a family history of cancer, of colon cancer, or they have not had a, an abnormal colonoscopy before, um, they, and then, so that's every 10 years. However, if the patient has a family member that has had colon cancer, um, that they have to have that, and it's a primary, a primary relative, meaning a, your brother, sister, mother, aunts and uncles, um, or grandparents, all the way up to grandparents. It's every five years. If the patient has a known history of any other cancer, it's every three years. So every three to five years. If the patient themselves have had a, a cancer, if the patient has, has a family history of cancer, it's every five years, or an abnormal colonoscopy before that, but if, if they've never had an abnormal colonoscopy, no family history, it's every 10 years. Yes, ma'am. So if a patient had an abnormal colonoscopy, it's every three years? Five. Five. Mm-hmm. Especially if they're brown or black. So we have uh, also the virtual colonoscopy. Um, this is a three-dimensional uh, image of the colon. It's pretty cool. Um, they, they take the images and the doctor puts on these glasses and everything looks in 3D and they can shift the, the image back and forth and up and down. Um, it's, uh, and then it goes in all the layers and out, okay? Um, so it can, it can detect precancerous polyps um, greater than one centimeter. Um, which anything greater than one centimeter has the highest risk of cancer. So um, it does have a place. When would you order a 3D dimensional test like that? Um, 
History of cancer, the patient that if families was old, are younger, would you say, than yeah. 45? Any other ideas? Why would you choose to do the virtual colonoscopy versus the colonoscopy itself? If, because it's non-invasive. If the patient is a high risk for complications, um, there have been abdominal surgeries, a lot of scar tissue, maybe a lot of adhesions. If the patient has had radiation to the abdomen, um, if the patient is at risk, a high risk for cardiovascular or pulmonary complications, this is not someone you want to put under colonoscopy. They have a bleeding disorder. You know, they, you don't want to put them at risk. Then this could be a option instead of a colonoscopy. The disadvantage is that it is expensive and it is not readily available. These things are usually in, in large um, hospital centers. Um, but if you, you are blessed like me to work out in the middle of nowhere where the nearest hospital is 50 miles away and it's not a research center, and all they have is colonoscopies, then all they do is colonoscopies because we don't have that. Now, um, if we can't do the colonoscopy, then we'll try to find a virtual colonoscopy, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. But it is an option, okay? For those patients that you feel, you know, the gastroenterologist, and you feel that it's just too high of a risk. Now the fecal DNA. Okay. So um, it identifies mutated genes, okay? We're not looking for blood. We're not looking for cancer cells. We're looking for genes. This is a genetic test. Um, it is not invasive, okay? So you don't have to have, have a prep. You don't have to go and, and do an endoscopy. You don't have to get prepped and do the CT scan. The 3D CT. Um, there are no dairy. You don't have to restrict the, the consumption of any any products, um, and um, it can detect precancerous polyps. And if you're going to do it, it has to be done every three years. Why wouldn't you do it? And literally, for those of us who have had colonoscopies before. And we are chained to the bathroom for 12 hours and have to go in at 5 in the morning and wait. You know, if I can do it from the privacy of my home and send it in the mail. But why, why do you think people would not do that? They didn't what? They didn't trust. They, they, they didn't trust it. Yeah. Huh, interesting. They didn't trust the results. They didn't trust the wow. So then, yeah. why would you think that they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it? It's cumbersome. They don't want to have to deal with stool. Why else? 
Yes, yeah, so it's, it's sent in the mail. It doesn't, it doesn't affect that. Yes, ma'am. Um, I believe that a lot of these at-home testing people are scared and uh, they have some crazy ideas that the companies are going to steal their DNA or to have ulterior motives. That has been the answer that I get the most. Really? Not, not the, not the, um, the fear that it's not accurate. It's not that. They are concerned that I'm sending out a specimen, that they're going to do my DNA, they're gonna, and they're afraid that they're not just going to check for that genome. They're going to do the whole genome mapping, and what are they going to do with that? Because in, in theory, like the PCR, all we need is a little itty-bitty piece and we can amplify it and we can actually create things with it. So if I get a piece of your DNA, I can amplify it and make a clone. <laughs> I mean, that's the craziness that people think. I mean, is it possible? Yeah, it's possible, but we're not there yet, we're there yet. But how do we explain to the patient that that's not the case. What do we tell the patient? Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, my argument is that what's the difference? I'm going to collect your DNA in the office and send it to the lab. So, like, why wouldn't you trust an in-office procedure? Like, more, like, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do that it's DNA. You know, but well, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. I get it. I get it. Totally get it. We take their samples and send it all the time. What's the difference? Yeah. I mean, initially, I think I'd say yeah. we're not going to do that. But the bigger concern here is not cloning you. The bigger concern is that you may have cancer. Yeah. I need to know definitively whether you do or do not. All right. Did anybody take notes on that? Yeah. All right. I like that. Hey. Good job, good job. <laughs> so, wrapping it up, yes, ma'am. Uh, oh, what did? I said, I said, we are not going to clone you, but the bigger concern is whether you do or do not have cancer, and we need that immediately. You need that immediately. <laughs> so, um, clinical laboratory focuses on the labs, and I teach you about the labs. But most importantly to me is the, these discussions. Who do we choose? How do we explain it to the patient? What happens if the patient refuses? You know. How do we navigate that? Yes, ma'am. But, um, like, why would I
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not arterial, arterial. <laughs> no, absolutely. See, those are those those are conversations that you have to be prepared and not get blindsided and say, oh my God. Well, hold on a second. I'm going to bring it out there. You know, how is that going to make you look? Right, like you don't know what you're doing. Right. I mean, it doesn't make you look good. So think about what your response would be. Especially if a, a 50-year-old Hispanic male with a family history of, of colon cancer, you, you want to have them to either do the fecal DNA test or let's do a colonoscopy, and they're like, no. You know, how do we navigate that? How do we negotiate with the patient? I have a couple of things I wanted to, to say. Uh, I think one, another reason why a patient may not want to do this is also like psychological. Like, you know, they might just be accustomed, like say, you know, word of mouth or family members to say, hey, the route is always colonoscopy. That's the screening. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to this, they may not want to do mm -hmm. it. Um, but on the flip side, the reason why people may want to do this is because of like, for instance, I have my father who who at one point didn't want to do a colonoscopy for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, because he lived in another country, and so he was always like ready to go back to his country. So the time for him to do the screening, he didn't have the time for preparation and, and stuff like that. So he would elect to do this route. But mm -hmm. I think with that, like I don't feel like this route is um, efficient enough um, to really diagnose, like a personal experience. Mm -hmm. My father got diagnosed with, colon, with stage two colon cancer mm -hmm. as a result of not doing the colonoscopy mm -hmm. um, timely. So mm -hmm. had they would have he done it, they probably would have seen a problem or whatnot and would have mm -hmm. took care of that. But because he did this route and it kind of like fell through the cracks and eventually right. it came it came back to bite him in his butt, mm -hmm. so to speak. That's a, that's a great experience, you know, but all of those things you have to take in consideration. Your, your story will make you more, more assertive to make sure that this patient is going to go for a colonoscopy and use the DNA more as a backup. That's what I said, trust me. Yeah. You know, so those of us, um, my, my mother, for instance, she has five five brothers, four out of the five have been diagnosed with cancer. Three have, have passed away of colon cancer. One is still alive. So my grandfather died of colon cancer. So there's definitely a genetic, you know, um, disposition. So because of my own personal history, I tend to be a lot more vigilant and a lot more like, no, we are not going to leave this office until you and I come to an agreement. Because this is too important for you and your family. And, um, but I'm, these are conversations we have to have, guys. You know, because you, you, you're the one ordering it. Yes. The thing is, how do we 
cross that barrier, that cultural barrier, that, so, you know, how do we, we call, and that's what I call, you've got to negotiate with your patient, okay? That, okay, 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 I understand, but I'm going to, I'm going to explain to you what the ultimate consequences could be, and you're going to listen me out, okay? You're going to give me five minutes of your time. I want you to go home and think about it, and I'm, I'm going I'm to call you, and we're going to talk again about this, okay? Usually you have to come back because they have a blood pressure chart, or they've got labs that they need to come back, and we're going to talk about this again. You negotiate with your patient, and try your best to cross that cultural um, barrier. And you see a hand back here? No? I was going to say another factor psychologically could be fear because they feel like once they receive a confirmation of this test, like it's cancer is like right, moving right. over them. Right. Whether they actually definitively have it or not, but mm -hmm. a biomarker then, mm -hmm. oh man, am I going to get this eventually? Yeah. The one, the one piece of information that tends to tip them over is that if they find a polyp and they remove it, I have just extended your life for 10 years. And that tends to like, okay, okay. Let's talk a little bit about fetal cold blood testing. It is no longer used for screening, okay? Um, it, it used to be we did it on a yearly basis for screening purposes, but it, it, it is not typically used for screening. We use it more for diagnosis and for fine blood in the stool, okay? Um, it, it has its purpose and it has its place. But it's not something that you're going to rely on for screening purposes. Really, you need to do a colonoscopy for screening. But this is an excellent tool. Um, if the patient comes in and you're suspecting that there could be something and you can check in the, right there in the office and see if there's blood. If there's blood, send them to GI, get the colonoscopy. Okay? All right. We are done with GI. I'll um, see you back next week. And um, great conversation, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Thank you. <laughs> Tomorrow at noon here. Thank you.